when my wife Laura's mom was alive, she would regularly buy our kids books or purchase magazine subscriptions uh, to encourage our kids learning their development in math, in science, and in reading. A couple magazines that we still have on subscription uh, are Ranger Rick and the Highlights magazine. And I, as much as our kids, look forward to, to, to getting these in the mail, and I, I look forward to sitting down with them and working through some of the exercises and the activities. They're, they're, they're really well designed, and, and they work for the development of our, our kids' minds and their thinking. One of the ones that, one of the activities that I love to, to do with my kids is find the change in the pattern identify the break in the pattern, right? So oftentimes this involves shapes, triangle, circle, square, triangle, circle, square, triangle, circle, circle. There it is, daddy. And he circles it. My son, Soren, who just turned six, there it is. That, that's the change. We need this skill of identifying the change in pattern this morning as we look to the Bible. As we look to a rather obscure and often overlooked passage in the Bible, one that if you're honest in your own Bible reading time, you're going to skip. We need to be able to identify the change in the pattern. Let's turn our Bibles to Genesis chapter 5. Genesis chapter 5, and the Bible's on your seat. You can find Genesis 5 on page 4. This morning we continue our sermon series in the book of Genesis that we began in mid-January called God the Creator and Redeemer. And so we're walking through the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. Uh, we'll finish at the end of May, and the title of that series is God the Creator and the Redeemer. Genesis 5, page 4. If you're here today and you need a Bible, we always mention this, we love to give away free Bibles. So in the lobby on the bookcase, there's some black hardback Bibles. You're welcome to take one as a gift from us. Uh, if you have a friend who needs one, by all means, get one for them as well. Genesis chapter 5, I'm going to read the whole chapter. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them, and he named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. 
Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief for our work, from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Yes, this is one of those passages that you and I skip in our devotional Bible reading time. And you might be thinking this morning, what can we possibly learn from preaching a passage like this? Friends, I'm here to tell you genealogies are incredibly important in the Bible. In the ears and the minds of the original readers, it would cause their hearts to pound with thanksgiving and praise of the Lord. Because you see, genealogies are pipelines of God's promises. They are pipelines that carry the promises of God throughout history. You see, God has worked in history through people, through generations, through lineages. He's worked a plan of redemption through people. His greatest promise to save a people for himself is carried out through the pipeline of his promise recorded in genealogies. They're incredibly important, worth spending some time combing through. Genesis 5 serves as one of those pipelines that carries forth the promise of God, the saving promise of God. There's a noticeable pattern to this genealogy, isn't it? As I read that aloud, you can pick up on the pattern audibly Here's a sample of the pattern from verse 6. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years and he died. What's the pattern? The pattern is that you're given the age of the patriarch when his first son was born. And then the subsequent lifespan of that patriarch after fathering his first son... And there's mention of other sons and daughters that are born to that given patriarch. And then you have the total added up age of the patriarch. Just add the first number to the second number before he fathered his first son. After, you get the total age. And then one after another after another, the death of the patriarch. And he died. And he died. And he died. And he died. That's the pattern in Genesis 5 repeated over and over again. 
So what we're going to do as we organize our time in this passage is identify the disruptions in the pattern. Mark the changes in the pattern. And there are three primary changes in the pattern. One in the beginning, one toward the middle, and one at the end. One at the beginning, one toward the middle, and one at the end. Why identify the changes in the pattern? Because the changes in the pattern create emphasis. And emphasis leads you to the primary truth the author wants you to take away. Disruptions in the pattern key you in on emphases in the text. So the central truth of Genesis 5 that we will arrive at is that fallen people have hope in the power of God and the promise of God to conquer sin and death. Fallen people have hope in the power of God and in the promise of God to conquer sin and death. That's the central truth that we'll see as we see the changes in the pattern. So pattern change number one, we see this in verses one through three, the value of God's fallen image bearers. The value of God's fallen image bearers. Let's look again at verses one through three. Just review this. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. So we read here in verse 1 that this genealogy is considered a book, likely a, a clay tablet or some kind of durable earthen material that could stand the test of time, that this genealogy was in fact written down upon so that it could be preserved. It shows you the importance of these, these genealogies. They were written down in a book, something to be preserved because they were important, precious to God's people because they connected themselves to their past and to their faithful God who's a promise maker and a promise keeper. And those promises are kept through genealogies, through lineages. This genealogy from Adam to Noah here in Genesis 5 records the names of real people who had real encounters with a real God. It is recorded history. However flawed these people were, we see the value of them, their names written down to be kept for progeny, to be kept through the generations. This is the value that we see God placing on human beings through his word. Flawed as they are, their names are written down. Real people with real encounters with the real God, their names are written down to be preserved throughout history. What key words or phrases do you see in verses one through three that we've read before in Genesis. If you've been with us, we began in Genesis chapter one and we're just marching all the way through Genesis 11. What key words do you identify that we have covered before? 
Here's a few of them. When God created man, we see that in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. In the likeness of God, he created them, Genesis 1, verse 26. Male and female, he created them, Genesis 1, verse 27. Men and women collectively together reflect the image of God. It's what it means to be human. God said, men and women, male and female, he created them and called them man, we see here. It called them humanity. Men and women together reflect what it means to be human and created in the image of God. And then after his image, we see it here in Genesis 5. It's also in Genesis chapter 1, 26 and 27 repeated. The importance of the image of God. The opening of this genealogy here in Genesis 5 unmistakably harkens back to the words of Genesis chapter 1 where we first encounter this beautiful picture, this beautiful doctrine of the image of God. Men and women have inherent dignity and value because we are created in God's image. We reflect parts of his character, not all of his character, parts of his character in that we speak, we think, we delight, we create, we love, we value. These are the things that we reflect back to God. We don't reflect his unchanging nature, his perfection. There, there are things and character attributes that we don't reflect, but there are character at attributes that we do reflect. We speak, we think, we create, we delight, we love. That's what it means to be created in the image of God. We reflect God. We represent God. And brothers and sisters, that truth changes the dynamic in how we view and treat other people. It's an essential doctrine. It gives value, inherent value to every person, no matter their age, no matter their gender, no matter their ethnicity. This is the image of God. It sets us apart from every other creature in the created order. We are the very crown of God's creation because only we, only humans are created in his image. Exceedingly dignifying truth in the scripture. We are created in the image of God. Now consider the placement of this reiteration that human beings are created in the image of God. Consider the placements here in Genesis 5. Is Genesis 5 before or after the fall of humanity? Before or after sin entered the world? It's after. The fall of humanity happened in Genesis 3. Is Genesis 1 the first time that we saw the doctrine of the image of God? Is that before or after the fall of humanity? It's before so this reiteration of the image of God bridges people pre-fall and post-fall. It's reiterated. This is exceedingly important. Why? Because though the tragic fall of humanity, we've plunged ourselves into sin and its consequence death in Genesis 3, the Lord comes along and said, they still bear the image of God. They still reflect me. They still have value and dignity. Though they're sinful and flawed, they still reflect the image of God. This is so important that it's reiterated here after the fall. 
You and I, sinful as we are, broken as we are, we still reflect the image of God, albeit in a soiled or a marred manner. We still reflect the image of God. This is critically important to remember in our broken lives and in our broken world. As corrupted as we are, we still bear a cracked image of God. We have value in God's eyes. And this truth must inform the way that we view and relate with God and the way we view and relate with other people. It must impact the way we view and relate with God. As you come here this morning and you take honest inventory of your soul, what is that besetting form of brokenness that you're bearing? All of us are prone to hide secret sins, things that we desire to tell nobody about, things that cause us shame and lead to our hiding, things that we feel guilt over. We are corrupted to the core. And there's a danger in believing that you're irredeemable, that you're too far gone. Believing that God wouldn't want to have anything to do with you. That is not true. Despite your sin, you still bear God's image. God loves you and he passionately pursues you through a lineage. Stay tuned in the sermon. He's done something about your brokenness. He's working a plan to redeem you. You're not too far gone. You see, our flesh, our sinful nature works in tandem with the enemy of our souls, Satan, to bring accusation and self-condemnation. Do you know what the devil is called in the scripture in the New Testament, Genesis chapter 12? The devil is called the accuser of the brethren. And that's King James language for the accuser of the brothers and sisters in the faith. One of Satan's tactics is to regularly accuse God's people, bringing up their past failures presently to beat them down and to keep them from moving forward. Satan's the accuser of the brethren. Where's God? He welcomes you as you are, sinful as you are. Come, come unto him, come unto him. He's, you've been created in his image. You have value and dignity, and he's working a plan to pursue you and to redeem you. This also affects the way we view others. Listen, all of us have people in our lives that we would rather not deal with. A boss, a spouse, a neighbor. Who is that difficult to deal with person in your life? Enemies who have hurt and wounded us and we want nothing but to be separated from them. Let me challenge you. The truth that they are created in the image of God impacts how you view them, how you treat them. They are not irredeemable. As long as they have breath in their lungs and a beat in their heart, they can be redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ if they turn to him in faith and repentance. I know we have some deep wounds in here of what people have done to you and to me, but let the truth that these people are created in the image of God inform how you interact with them. In fact, how you pray for them, for their redemption. Do that, that's a good thing. When you begin to pray for the people who have mistreated you, it changes how you view them. 
and taps you into the power of the one who can change them. This is the truth of the image of God that still reflects among sinful people. The introduction of the genealogy here in Genesis 5 is a change in the pattern that we see in the rest of the genealogy. So this introduction has kind of an expansion. There's more detail in the first three verses. And then the pattern goes on, and then it expands again at the end, where we see another change in that pattern. So first, we see the value of God's image bearers. The second pattern change is that death is defied in Enoch. Death is defied in Enoch. So Genesis 5, verse 3, through Genesis 5, verse 20, clips right along with that same pattern that we've already outlined. Remember the pattern. The age of the patriarch when his first son is born. The subsequent lifespan of the patriarch after his first son is born. And then there's mention he had other sons and daughters. He had other other sons and daughters. Then the total age of the patriarch followed by the death of that given patriarch. Six times that pattern is repeated, and then suddenly we arrive at the seventh generation in verses 21 through 24. Suddenly we arrive at the seventh generation, and something's altogether different. Let's look at that seventh generation, verses 21 through 24. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and was not, or and was no more, for God took him. Triangle, circle, square. Triangle, circle, square. Triangle, circle, hexagon. Whoa, something's happening here. Something significant is going on here. Now, first a question that we're all asking, I'm sure. What is going on with the mega ages of people here? 800 plus, 900 plus years. What is going on with these great ages of human beings at this point in history? The short answer is we do not know. There is a fair bit of mystery embedded in the text There is a dramatic change in lifespan post-Noah and the flood. A dramatic reduction in lifespan. We don't know why. People have ascertained and hypothesized there's some physiological change that happens post-flood, some cosmological change. We just don't know. The author doesn't intend to tell us. Here's what we do know. These people actually lived long lives... They actually lived and they actually died. They actually lived and they actually died in this genealogy. Though their earthly lives may have been long, they ultimately died one after the other after the other. That's the refrain in these generations. And he died and he died and he died six times over. And then suddenly, Verse 21 and 24, when Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God, and after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters, thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was no more, for God took him. Author W.R. Bowie writes this of Enoch. 
his story shines like a star brilliant above the earthly record of this chapter. This is beautiful shining star in the midst of the darkness of successive death. Suddenly Enoch, this man who curiously walks with God and then he's no more. Two surprising statements that we see involving Enoch. Enoch walked with God, number one, and number two, Enoch was no more, for God took him. Two surprising statements. First, Enoch walked with God. Picture two friends walking hand in hand, walking together in fellowship, in closeness, in intimacy. It's a picture of of deep friendship, a picture of relationship, one of closeness, one of trust and obedience. That's the idea here, relational intimacy, as was intended in the Garden of Eden pre-fall, what do we see? After the fall, the Lord is walking through the garden in the cool of the day. It's just picture of what he did with Adam and Eve, walked with them, relational intimacy that was shared with them. This is what was intended in Eden, and Enoch is picking up on it. He's doing it. He's walking with the Lord in trust and obedience and closeness. Elsewhere, we see in Genesis, people who walked with God. Noah is described as walking with God in Genesis chapter 6, verse 9. Abraham is invited to walk with God, Genesis 17, verse 1, and in Genesis 24. This is a key description of relationship with God, closeness with God, arrived at through trust and obedience. Friends, God's desire is for people created in his image to walk with him, to trust in him, to obey him. God's desire for you is relational closeness and intimacy. And it's our sin, our desire to go our own way and do our own thing and disobey God that creates relational separation from God, as we've seen the last couple weeks in Genesis, the consequences of the fall, further and further separation. But God's heart, his desire is for people to walk with him in trust and obedience. God's desire is to walk with his image bearers, and our greatest need is to walk with our creator. Your greatest need, you were wired to walk with God in trust and obedience. You were not wired to live in defiance and disobedience to God. You see, our sin actually makes us less of what we were created to be. Our sin dehumanizes us. We were designed as humans to walk with God in trust and obedience, but it's our sin that actually dehumanizes us. God's desire is to walk with you. Your greatest need, whether you realize it this morning or not, is to walk with him. Not walk independent of him, but to walk with him in dependence. Are you walking with God? Or are you out on a stroll by yourself, living in independence from him? His desire is to walk with you. Your greatest need is to walk with him. Enoch walked with God. Second, Enoch was no more, for God took him. It's a stunning break in the pattern that we've seen so far. And he died, and he died, and he died. Suddenly, Enoch did not die. Enoch defied death by the power of God. 
Notice this defying of death is the work of God. Who took Enoch? Enoch didn't climb a ladder up to be with God. Enoch was snatched. He was, he was taken. The power to defy death is in the hand of God. God took him. Only God can defy death. As David says in Psalm 68, verse 20, I was reading this this morning early, just my own devotions. Our God is a God of salvation, and to God, the Lord, belong deliverance from death. Our God is a God of salvation, and to God, the Lord, only belongs deliverance from death. He is the only one that can rescue you from death. He is the only one that can defy death by his powerful hand. This is a glorious star shining in the midst of the dark record of death, isn't it? The consequence of man's sin in Genesis 3 is death, and here it's escaped. It's defied by the power of God. Enoch is a shining star pointing forward to victory over death. He's a shining star that points us forward to a greater ultimate star that God has set forth to deliver us from death. Enoch is a pointer, a type, a forerunner of Jesus Christ who conquered death, who defied death. In Jesus Christ, God would once and for all defy death through his resurrection. Jesus, in fact, would be called the resurrection and the life. John 11, verse 25, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. He's holding out the hope of victory over death for all who trust in Christ, the resurrected one. Let me ask you this. What hold does death have on you this morning? How does the fear of death grip you, cast a shadow of fear over your life? The invitation of scripture is to trust in the one who has defied death, who's conquered death through his resurrection. Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life. Anybody who trusts in him, though he or she die, will have eternal life. You need not fear death when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the one who defied it. Notice a key contrast here between the lineage of Cain in Genesis 4 and the lineage of Seth in Genesis 5. The seventh generation in Cain's line in Genesis 4 ends in Lamech, who defied God and vengefully brought death. Whereas the seventh generation in Seth's line is Enoch, in Genesis 5, verse 21, who walked with God and was graciously given deliverance from death. A stunning contrast between the lineage of Cain and the lineage of Seth. The, the lineage of destruction in Cain and the lineage of promise in Seth. So the value of God's image bearers. Secondly, death defied in Enoch. The third and final pattern change, a deliverer is born. A deliverer is born. We see this in verses 28 through 31. Let's look at those verses together. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, 
saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days All the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. Notice how the genealogy expands with detail with Noah. As it's clipping right along, fast-paced, suddenly at the end here, it expands with Noah, expands with detail. Noah's name, you'll see a little footnote in the ESV Bible that we've provided you on your chairs. Noah's name means rest, and it's related to the Hebrew word for comfort or relief. So the arrival of Noah, the son of Lamech, is loaded with hope and expectation. Lamech speaks this word of prophecy at the arrival of his son, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief. This one shall bring us comfort. He's loading his son with expectation and hope. He's going to bring relief from the curse that we've endured as a result of sin. You see, Lamech longs for relief from the curse, straining under the weight of the curse that we see in Genesis 3, 17, he's longing for relief, comfort, that he knows is tied to God's promise just two verses prior in Genesis 3, prior to the curse. This good news is spoken by the Lord. The offspring of Eve will crush the head of the serpent, Genesis 3, 15. That's the first time the good news of the gospel is proclaimed and it's carried forward through genealogies until it culminates in Christ, the one who comes and who conquers sin and death, crushes the head of the serpent, crushes Satan and all that he stands for, sin and death. Lamech is longing for relief. He's placing hope in the person and the work of his son, Noah. This one shall bring relief. This one shall bring deliverance. Noah will indeed work deliverance. He will be used as an agent of rescue by the hand of God. He, like Enoch, will walk with God in trust and obedience. You see it in Genesis chapter 6, verse 9. Noah walks with God. He obeys God. He trusts God to build a boat upon dry land at the mockery of his neighbors. No, we're going to see this in the coming weeks. Noah, what are you doing? He's a laughingstock, yet he doesn't care what people think. He's more interested in trusting and obeying his God. That's always a safe place to be in the midst of people ridiculing you. Care more about what the opinion of God is. Noah walks with him, trusts God. And then when God unleashes the waters of his judgment upon the wickedness of men, Noah and his family are rescued, delivered from the judgment of God. So Noah, yes, will fulfill the words of his father's prophecy, Lamech, who will bring relief, comfort, but a temporary one. 
Noah's not ultimate. He's a point in the progeny that just carries the promise forward more, more, downstream, downstream, until it finally culminates in the ultimate deliverer, Jesus Christ, whose birth was accompanied by words of prophecy, just like Noah's was. That evening, this announcement was made over Jesus Christ and his birth. Luke 2, verses 10 and 11. The angel said to the shepherds, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. Jesus, like Noah, had prophecy spoken over him at his birth. Jesus, like Noah, had anticipation and hope bound up in him. Noah was a type that gave way to the fullness of the promise, the fulfillment of the promise. Noah was a shadow that gave way to the substance in Christ. It is Jesus who is the deliverer who has been born, who has lived and died and rose again. This is the yes and the amen of God's promise that we sang when Michael led us. All God's promises find their fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. All of God's promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. He is the deliverer who has been born. You need him, I need him every moment of every day. He's the one who died for you for your sins and rose again to conquer them. Would you trust in Christ, the deliverer who has been born? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your word, for your promises that have been passed on through people, through lineages throughout history. You are a faithful God who keeps your every promise, all of them find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. All of them find their yes and amen in Christ. Empower us, O oh God, to live in trust and obedience, to walk with you as Enoch and Noah and Abraham and ultimately your son did to the fullest. Help us to walk with you, to love you, to grow in your likeness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.